Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Interactives podcast. On today's episode, uh, sadly, no grace, but we do have Adam Tinworth. Uh, senior lecturer, or is it senior lecturer I'm, or no, I'm visiting just, I'm lecturer? I'm just a visiting lecturer. Visiting lecturer. Well, senior in my eyes, anyway. Um, visiting lecturer at City University, uh, owner and proprietor of One Man on Anti's blog, and an expert really in all things audience and social and uh, yeah, in that field. If you'd like to introduce yourself, Adam. Hello, my name's Adam Timworth. I am a, a business journalist by background, in fact. But I possibly started journalism when I was seven and ran a newspaper <laughs> for the children on my street. Uh, I, in parallel with my business journalism career in the late 90s, I started getting involved in online communities, particularly through some freelancing I was doing at the time for a gaming company. That led to me starting to use LiveJournal in 2001. And at the time, I was working for a, a magazine that had a quite successful paywalled website, but that could only publish the web twice a day, which seems almost unbelievable yeah. today's standards but at the time we, that particular CMS we used to have to stack up all the stories we were going to publish and then push them live literally twice a day and I remember sitting there typing in live journal pressing publish and realising this was on the web just there and I was like oh, oh that changes everything I should have paid more attention to that and that then about a year and a half later led to me setting up my current blog one man and his blog which is, yes, a very bad pun on one man and his dog. It was 2003, punny blog names were compulsory, um, which in fact turns 17 tomorrow, of all things, yeah. which is kind of terrifying. I'm only a few years off having students who are younger than my blog, which I just can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's amazing the fact that... Because, I mean, I have a blog. I feel like everyone has a blog, but, like, your blog is... It was actually successful. It, well, as far as anything is, it was a very, it was a very different era. I mean, it was two thousand three. Yeah. We're, we're a year before Facebook is founded. We are three years before Twitter is going to be founded, and so it was the explosive social medium of the time. Mm. A couple of years before podcasting started, which everyone thinks started about five years ago, yeah. but it's actually much older than that. So uh, it was, it, it was actually quite refreshing as journalists to actually have the power to publish for myself mm. without having to go through editors and seeking permission although it was quite strange about three years later when suddenly after having three years of happily and cheerfully publishing for myself um, the business around me suddenly became aware that I was doing it <laughs> and I suddenly felt a, a, a much more restricted in what I could say for a while in fact I nearly killed my traffic in about two months just by suddenly tightening up and getting all sort of clenched right. if you like because I suddenly realised oh other people who know me are reading me now <laughs> and luckily I did relax and that led to me taking a, uh, being offered a central job in the company I was working for essentially doing digital journalism development work at the time initially rolling out a a network of blogs around our titles, but then that led into early experiments with video, particularly as phones started getting better at video and flip cams, for those who remember them, became a thing and just experimenting with much more casual styles of video in the early days of YouTube. Uh, and, and then particularly as social media boomed, um, mm. I, I had a big role in starting to roll out the use of tools like Twitter and Facebook um, across the business. Yeah, I mean, because it's amazing to think now of a world where those things weren't almost ubiquitous. No, but uh, as I think I probably joked in one of the early lectures, when I started doing this sort of work, 
the editors I worked with wanted to do stuff in my space and second life. And we don't spend an awful lot of time on those today. No, indeed. So the world does change, although it changes less than it used to. I mean, things like Twitter and Facebook have been consistent for well over a decade now. But we are still seeing change. We're still in things, I mean, by literally, TikTok was a joke in the the lecture series this time last year. And this time it's actually been taken quite seriously. And across the industry, people are actually now having to pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah. So it is definitely a fast-moving field, which keeps... which makes life entertaining (laughs) definitely and also at times stressful it keeps you on your toes i suppose yeah i i I, if anything it's accelerating and so trying to keep on top of everything no longer feels feasible so Mm. in in the sort of field we call audience engagement now which is a relatively new name i go back 15 years we were probably calling it community community management uh, sort of job title community editors then we went through the social media phase mm-hmm. and it was pretty much social media editors and now we're going to a much sort of broader picture job role uh, where people are much more involved in audience engagement and audience growth which are slightly distinct but interrelated ideas sure. because you can do audience engagement without it being growth driven and you can do growth without it being engagement driven but they are better when they come yeah. together as a concept and it's a much happier place now because we are looking at a more broad brush way at search and social and direct engagement tools like newsletters and podcasts and videos as more of an integrated strategic whole. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more of a strategic role than it used to be. There are still plenty of jobs in production roles, but that strategic element is really where I do a lot of my work, helping people figure out what are these range of tools are most relevant to reaching and engaging with the audiences they want to reach. Yeah. Okay. Um, you so you mentioned how basically how things are still moving very quickly, but was it correct? Is it correct summation of what you said to say that they're sort of slowing down? Or uh, no, if anything, I don't think they're slowing down. I think the. I think the tools we used changed faster 10 years ago. Right, okay. But the change is still happening. Okay, the, so the crux of my... But the, the nature of the changes has changed, if you like. Yeah. So now we're responding to big algorithm changes, for right, example, okay, in okay. the platforms, and trying to rebalance the level of platforms. Yeah. There's also the, the weird phenomenon of things coming back in and out of fashion. Well, Podcasts being a classic example. Yeah. Um, and also the institutional knowledge loss that comes with that. There was that moment a couple of years ago when The Guardian proudly announced their first daily news podcast and a bunch of ex-Guardian journalists went, uh, no, we did this <laughs> 10 years ago and, we shut you, and you shut us down. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a certain amount of uh, correction. Newsletters, again, email, newsletters, a huge boom market right now, over 20-year-old, 30-year-old yeah. piece of technology that's finding a new, their new life. So... Uh, I, actually, I don't think I think there's no signs of this process slowing down yet. Simply because I think we're still um, we're still experimenting. We're still trying to figure out what journalism looks like in this new age. Mm-hmm. We have completely changed our communication tools. They keep changing around us, and therefore we are still trying to figure out things as we go. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not seeing any particular signs of slowing down. No, indeed. Um, it's interesting. Do you think that we'll ever get to a stage when 
because uh, it feels like we're playing this cat and mouse game with the social media uh, organizations and Google and trying to catch up to the algorithm that is necessarily changing because we're trying to catch up is there. I, I Can think, we reach it? I think it will eventually settle out. Right. But it might not be in our lifetimes. Okay. I mean, to give you a bit of historical, historical perspective, we are going through a revolution, probably on the scale of the Industrial Revolution, in terms of the technology changes around us. That took about 150 years yeah. to, to roll through. And actually, if you look in detail, it was several overlapping revolutions. And so we may be going through a similar period of change. And actually, when you step back from journalism and look at the things that are impacting on us, um, we are being impacted by the adoption of these social media tools by politicians mm. and by states mm. and the way states are interfering in the e information ecologies of other countries that's new and that challenges journalism yeah yeah so it's not just the technology we're dealing with it's the second and third order implications of that technology we are dealing with yeah. And I don't think we're anywhere near resolving any of that. I, I think I, we're in the very early stages of this. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that social media is coming to a, an interesting place where it feels like it's almost a necessity and the internet feels like, well, the internet feels like a, like a basic utility at this point. Like, Actually, strangely enough, I think what, one of the things that's happened is something we sort of predicted about 10 to 15 years ago. A lot of people were writing and thinking about, in admittedly, far too utopian terms, about the ability of the internet to allow politicians or anybody else to talk directly mm. to their audience. That didn't really happen because in the intermediate phase, what happened is the sort of the marketing people got involved <laughs> and they turned social media into another marketing channel. Yeah, and yeah. so there was things like uh, Obama's famous picture of him hugging his wife during his second re-election campaign. Incredibly powerful image, but very marketing, very traditional marketing. Yeah. Here is a prepared image that goes out on our social media marketing channel. You compare that with Donald Trump, who <laughs> obviously has some interesting challenges, he says, trying to be polite. But <laughs> he's a man who very clearly talks very directly to his audience in a way that is unmediated by marketing people yes, or anything very else. Honest, and at least. What we are seeing is you know, in lots of other ways, people like Dominic Cummings with his blog post mm. directly reaching out to the sorts of people he wants to recruit. Now, that's not always going straightforward. If you've got a little bias towards eugenics, then maybe that's <laughs> not, not a great way to go. But it, it, it's a direct form of communication, direct way of reaching yeah. that disintermediates the press. Yeah. And, I, and we sort of knew this could happen, and then it didn't happen for 10 years, and now all of a sudden it's happening really fast. Right. It's a bit like, oh, so how did you go broke? Um, I went broke slowly and then all at once. How did the change happen? It went really slowly and then it happened all at once. Right. Over three years, we've suddenly seen the whole political landscape transformed. Oh, and I don't think the journalism world has quite twigged yet how, how quickly things have changed around us, yeah. how long the potential has been there. And I don't think we're adapting fast enough no. yet either. And I guess, I guess we weren't prepared for it. We kind of ex Maybe we expected it to come, but we weren't expecting it to come in the way it did. I think that there were a number of people who said this would come. Right. And because it didn't come as fast as they expected, they were dismissed. There's, okay. a, sort of, there's a sort of Cassandra nature. Or Chicken Little, yeah. Yeah, some of, the, some of us who have been saying these things from very early on, uh, sort of doomed not to be believed until too late. Mm. And also, I think we all got distracted. I mean, I think Facebook became a massive distraction. Mm. So 10 to 15 years ago, you had all sorts of interesting people like Joanna Geary and Laura Oliver and Robin Hammond. Kevin Anderson 
doing some really interesting community engagement stuff around newspapers. And then all of a sudden, um, Facebook came and just stole all that stuff and we stopped doing communications on our sites and it all just became Facebook pages. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Glyn Mottishead, who's a, now a lecturer here at City, but who was at Cardiff for a long time, he used to have a guest lecture series that I used to talk at when I had a proper job. Um, and he used to say, it was, he said in part it was very interesting in the early days because you had lots of guest speakers from different parts of journalism, whether it be local, broadcast, trade, um, mainstream newspapers doing very different projects and you know, a whole series of interesting lectures over, over a term. But a few years after I stopped doing it, it became lots of people turning up saying, oh, we put all our stuff on Facebook. Yeah. And, and there's a sort of that narrowing phase. And even on this, this, this very module that you're studying at the moment, we went through this phase where it was very hard to persuade people to pay attention to anything, but how do I optimize stuff for Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, yeah. But ironically enough, I've had some of the people from those years sort of sidling back and say, can I take you for a coffee and discuss how, how we might do community management in groups a bit? <laughs> Didn't pay a lot of attention to that a few years ago, but I'd like to know yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're also seeing a sort of resurrection of some of the skills, so whether that's the Guardian and podcast or us and community management, yeah. as they come back into into focus, if you like. Yeah, because I think that, I think that obviously Facebook and Twitter seem really attractive on the first level because they're good at increasing your reach and it's yeah. good to see those analytics go up, but... I guess it's harder to envisage the slightly more like second order statistics like loyalty and... Um, yes. and also just having a direct relationship because yeah. those are mediated relationships and particularly with Facebook as we've seen, they can change the algorithm like that yeah. and suddenly businesses get destroyed and okay. we have seen sites close off the back of Facebook algorithm change from a couple of years ago. Very, yeah, personally I'm writing an article about something very similar. Yeah, um, and so it's, it's that sense of actually trying to have a more of a joined up um, thought process where okay we're still going to use social media we're still going to use social media to build relationships we're still going to use social media to find stories we're still going to promote on social media but we're also going to try and take some of the relationships that are nurtured on social media and bring them into direct relationship with Definitely. titles yeah. into, uh, in the sort of jargon way we might call owned and operated mm. things which are things like newspaper letters things like podcasts even just getting people to come to our site regularly. Yeah. Those are the sort of things we're now taking much more seriously. And actually, I think, talking to a lot of people who do these sorts of jobs, because it's not a big world, they're finding it much more interesting than it was two or three years ago. Yeah, I can imagine. It, it, you know, becoming a Facebook shoveling machine. particularly <laughs> exciting, whereas actually doing the strategic stuff and trying to join up elements or experimenting with how you build communities around payments. Yeah. Those are interesting jobs to do. Because it's very creative, and even from just my research of it, it's very, you have to find something novel, sort of inherently, right? Because you have to find something new for your your organization so, to uh, yeah, do. There's, there's three different bits there. There's the, there's the finding something interesting in an attention-poor age is hard. Mm. There is the standing out from your crowd and finding stuff that appeals to your audience rather than your competitors' audience if they're not yeah. the same. Yeah. It's quite hard. Plus, there are often no trailblazers. Uh, True. People, people who are only a couple of years off this course are now heading up social in major news organisations and they have nobody they can copy. You know, new tool comes along, they have to figure out how to use it. Yeah. There is no best practice we can take off the um, excuse me, there's no best practice we can take off the shelf and copy. This is not an established... Uh, the, the basics of journalism we know how to do. We have a couple of hundred years of getting really <laughs> good at that. But how those express through digital and how we communicate things 
how new forms emerge. That's the areas of experimentation. Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's lots of work still to be done in that space. And I guess the most pertinent question for me as a starting out journalist is how do I justify my trailblazing ridiculousness to an editor? Who... <laughs> uh, a lot depends on having an editor who knows what they're looking for. Right. We had a guest speaker in a couple of weeks ago and one thing the points they made was when they'd gone for interviews at various places, you just needed an engagement job. They knew they needed an engagement job. They didn't necessarily know what an engagement job was going to be. Okay, so apologies about that. As is ever the case in this university, your space is only ever your own for maybe half an hour. Uh, but we've moved to hopefully a safer location, um, and it seems that this is going to be a running trend, so maybe get used to that. Um, I believe, Adam, we were on uh, how do you get an editor to sort of respect the work you do and take a chance on you? Yes, it's, it is a, it's a difficult question to answer. Hmm because it is something everyone battles with. It's, I, I have some sympathy for a lot of the senior people in journalism right now. As you work your way up this slippery competitive slope, you get to the top of the trade, and then suddenly it all starts changing around you. Mm. And some people embrace that, and some people battle with that. And uh, finding a place that's prepared to give people the room to experiment is a useful place to get but equally intelligent experimentation is the name of the game um, every title every commercial title has a business model mm. and you need to understand at some level the role of what you are doing in that business model now not everything is necessarily trackable directly to money and you do need to find room for learning so a uh, classic example at the moment is the Washington Post TikTok channel, yeah. which is probably not directly translating into any money, but is a good way of a, and what I think is most interesting about what they're doing, building trust between journalists and the audience by actually portraying their journalists as human beings. Very true. And at, at a time in American political life where the distance between the journalists and the people seems to be very high. Wide, yeah. yeah very wide, that's a better way of putting it. Um, that's a good gap to start bridging mm. but also it's investing time in learning the lang the native language of that platform that gives them the ability to start experimenting with telling stories on that platform in the native language and we're seeing uh, former student Fra uh, Francesco here doing similar things over with the Telegraph and mm. the way they're experimenting with telling serious news stories in the native language of TikTok so there's, there's lots of potential but it requires people to it requires organisations that understand this is important and have an open minded and that is not true of every organisation. Certainly, talking to former <laughs> students who have been in certain places where they've moved simply because they've realised they've reached the limits of that job role because for whatever reason the senior people there were not prepared to experiment. They wanted to do what they've always done but harder rather than <laughs> um, broaden the scope of the role double down on the, the 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 plan that you have rather than try and see what other options are available absolutely um 
but fundamental to the sort of job role these courses prepare for people for is the ability to create your own job to some degree yeah, true. because there are no hard and fast job descriptions the job is going to change around you and you have to be able to communicate what you do and the value of what you do to the wider organisation. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why we model that a little bit by putting you interactive students in with newspaper students during these production weeks. Because you have different sets of agendas and trying to find ways of bridging that gap is mm. good practice for the workplace. Yeah. And we quite consistently hear from former students, although they found it difficult at the time, it's something they come to value later on as they realise they're going to get a very similar processes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because basically every speaker you've had, uh, former student you've had come in has said the role I currently work in didn't exist before I worked in it, which is, I think, terrifying, but I suppose also freeing in a way. Uh, you have, I mean, I, I suppose by very nature of coming on the interactive MA, hmm. you are a bunch of people who are who are aware enough of the changes in journalism to want to explore things like data journalism. Or coding or social media journalism they, these are expanding areas so you are looked beyond the, sort of the mainstream of journalism and already seen the potential there video it's another big obviously clearly growing area so by nature it tends to attract people who have a willingness to experiment mm. and are interested are as interested in the form of journalism as the actual journalism process itself yeah true. a lot of what's going on is not we know what journalism is. We know, we really deeply know it's finding stuff out and telling other people about <laughs> it. And we have lots of good fundamental processes and training already that teaches how people to do that well, to do it ethically. What the experimentation is now around the different forms that can take, mm. the different tools we have for reporting and finding stories, but also the different tools we have for publishing those stories. Yeah. And so really, the, the process in the middle, the actual finding a story and expressing it, we understand, is the bits either side that are yeah, changing, yeah, yeah. how we report and how we publish that. Yeah, of course. I was reading your blog actually earlier today and I noticed a, there was a post on um, increasing sort of disillusionment and uh, um, basically, I feel that there, uh, we've discussed this in class a few times. There's a flight to two different sides of production. It feels like you have these high content, low uh, value articles. They're like sort of content mills, and then you have like the niche, more high quality, maybe more of a subscription paywall model. Yep. Do you think that's re replicated, or do you think that creates a sort of polarization in general in media? I, I think we are. There are lots of challenges. I mean, the fundamental challenge is the business model challenge. The old print business model, fundamentally broken. So we are trying to work out how to make journalism pay in the new age. Mm. And I don't think there is a single answer. If there's been one weakness over the last 20 years, it's journalism tending to run around assuming there would be a single answer to this problem. Right. Oh, it'll be out. No, it won't. Oh, it'll be paywalled. Oh, no, it won't. Um, for most businesses, it's probably going to be a combination of these, and it's probably going to have to be have to be varied based on both time and also the nature of your audience mm. and what they're prepared to pay for. So, for example, um, the uh, UK launched a paywall for the Times that was very successful, and they launched a paywall for the Sun, which was not, and which <laughs> came down. But that was because they try to apply a single solution to two very different editorial products 
with very different target markets in very different competitive landscapes. Yeah. And the solution that worked in one set of circumstances did not work in the other. Yeah. And that's one of the things we're going through at the moment. We're feeling our way through the lots of different business models and combinations of business models that might make journalism stack up. Yeah. I think we're we're certainly seeing a consolidation on the big end, whether it's sort of big content trawlers like Mail Online, or you know, increasingly international, so national news brands who become increasingly international. There's an interesting discussion about whether the New York Times is becoming so big it's sort of sucking air out the ecosystem, <laughs> which is an interesting discussion. No, definitely. But on the other end, we're seeing you know, the both birth of the. The, almost the single journalist model which has always been floating around you know, a lot of blogs started that way but increasingly uh, off the shelf tools that allow you to put memberships in front of those and tools like Substack or Memberful on WordPress or Ghost allow you to build a membership driven uh, journalism model from one person and very few tech costs yeah, true. so I, I, we've seen a lot of experimentation at the top end of the scale often backed by VC all by existing revenues and reinvesting those before they disappear. We're starting to see another wave of experimentation down the bottom end. Yeah. Um, not everything will survive. It's the nature of experimentation. But we, it's as ever, it's, it's always an interesting time to be in journalism at the moment because it keeps changing around us. And there are lots of opportunities for experimenting. That doesn't mean it's not hard. Yeah. And I, um, going off topic here, but just the process of being a journalist on social media is harder now than it's ever been yeah. in terms of the likely abuse and attacks you get. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, and that's, that's one of the challenges we're dealing with. But then that's one of the things that's driving people towards more protected closed spaces. Mm. If your journalism is behind a membership wall or a subscription wall, which is slightly different, um, we, and not pub, as it's publicly exposed, you could actually have more useful conversations and interactions with a smaller group of people who are paying more money than your sort of drive-bys who just come in for the, the, the punch-up and then go away. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, damn, it's really irritating. I, I had, a, I had a, an addendum to something you were going to say, but um, that, that's fine. Um, if I think of it, I will ask you. That's okay. The other... the. the no, that's what it was. That's what it was. Um, I it wasn't so much a question as just a, an addition. I think that the experiment. Some things don't work, but I find what I find really interesting and really engaging about this is um, how when things don't work, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're dead. I no. mean, the very form that we're using right now, like people had counted out for a very very long time, yes. and then it resurged. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, podcasting, two thousand four, two thousand five. Yeah. I started listening to podcasts, and I've been using them consistently. But, Same, know, actually. Yes, newspapers shut down their podcasting arms and they're suddenly re- recreating yeah. them again. I mean, first of all, it's, it's generally true that it's very rare that a new form of media completely displaces an old form of media. Hmm. So for all the print is dead sort of stuff you sometimes see, it's not. No. Um, because theatre still exists. Film <laughs> did not kill theatre. No, indeed. Much noticed. And it did, ditto TV did not kill film. Yeah. And I don't think online will kill print. Uh, just a few hundred yards from here, there's a shop called Mag Culture, which is full of very expensive, very like high quality magazines. Yeah. But that's you know, print reinventing itself for a different age, where it's more of a luxury upmarket product. For sure. Yeah. And then you could argue things like Metro or I are examples of print as a much cheaper, more disposable yeah. product. So again, a polarisation effect. 
into different different niches mm. as response to digital. Uh, so I don't think print's going to die. I don't think media tends to disappear completely. I mean, I mean, even looking at newsletters, if you look at Substack, which is a newsletter, it's also available on the web with comments. It's like, hang on a second, all you've done is reinvented blogging except delivered via email. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, the platform I use now, Ghost, is just doing the same thing from the other direction. It's a blog which you can deliver as an email. Yeah, yeah. And all of that, I mean, at the heart of all of these is solving the readership problem mm. because actually the biggest problem is getting people to pay attention to your journalism and which is why social media has been there it's why emails are attractive because it goes directly to people's inboxes it's why podcasting is attractive because hopefully people who are listening to this have subscribed they have pressed yeah, the subscribe button in whatever call to action in. yeah <laughs> um, and hope some of them probably subscribed three years ago and are suddenly surprised to see it resurrect in their inbox and going hang on a second i what? thought this was luke and breedy <laughs> no it's, it's uh, a weird new voice it's, it's new voices these were the same people three years ago no because they're off doing stuff at mail online or wherever it might be yeah i think vox maybe one i don't know whatever um yeah lots of people move on so uh, but that's an advantage because that sort of subscription that things just turning up on your phone is an incredibly powerful way of reaching Definitely. people i mean uh self-plug here but i did a the, the rss article i think rss mm. feeds are criminally underutilized yeah i, I think I mean, podcasting has succeeded, even though it's based on RSS, because people, nobody needs to know it's based on yeah. RSS. Yeah. Although I did once have a conversation with a student here some years ago on a different course who was asked to, who was asked to produce something as a podcast. And I just had, and this student was trying really hard and they'd researched RSS feeds and they're trying to set it up as an RSS feed. And they came to me and said, this, this bit I'm struggling with. And I had a sort of, I have a feeling they don't really mean podcast. Yep. I think they mean just an embedded piece of audio and upload it to SoundCloud. I'll go and check for you. <laughs> and yes, that was. But because people are sometimes a bit imprecise with their language around yeah. this stuff, I find this particularly annoying in sub-editors who would be incredibly precise about anything else but allow all sorts of fluffiness to happen around tech. Yeah, my particular bugbear is online blogs. Which, yes, yeah. because there are so many offline Mind blogs, blogs. <laughs> aren't, aren't there. Anyway. Yeah. Um, because that... Podcasting has succeeded because it's sort of concealed the RSS-iness of it. Definitely. Uh, there haven't been as many goods in Feedly's getting there of, of ways of making a RSS reader that doesn't feel techy-ish. Definitely. But, but I think one of the sad, one of the sad things is, about Feedly is that it is really good, but I think I remember trying to set up my RSS feeds with Feedly earlier, and I found that a lot of places had stopped publicly offering RSS feeds. So maybe that is a form that will die. Yeah, I don't know if it'll die, but I, I don't think it's ever going to be a mass market tool. Fair enough, yeah, that's fair. I, I think actually one of the reasons for still publishing RSS feeds is actually most people are never going to subscribe to them, mm. but the people who are other people who are high-level information consumers who tend also to be powerful information sharers, whether they're bloggers themselves or newsletter writers yeah. or people who just share stuff a lot on social media. Uh, so it, it's a it's essentially a power user tool. Yeah. Most people are never going to use it, but for those people who are really serious about information flows, mm. and there's lots of interesting things you can do as a working journalist by using RSS feeds and carefully set up Google searches and social media yeah, searches yeah, yeah. to actually build a sort of constant flow of information to you yeah. that allows you to find stories before other people spot them. Well, we were talking about um, Discord as a community engagement tool mm. um, earlier today, and. I, there was this app called Zapier, and uh, if you, yes. there's a, a function where you can make an RSS feed digest, which publishes directly to a Discord, and then when you click on the digest, it goes to a completely separate 
um, like made digest. Yes, absolutely. Which is, yeah, I mean, so the customization for RSS feeds, I think, is really, really good. But. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole world out there of these open platforms and tools yeah. and APIs which you can do interesting things plugging them together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And again, it's, it, not every journalist is going to do it, but not every journalist was a layout sub or not every <laughs> journalist was a you know, photo editor. There yeah. are specialist skill sets and there are a bunch of people out there. So, I mean, Martin Starby, uh, who's in the Financial Times now, I remember years ago he had a sort of beautiful and arcane set of Yahoo pipes and other feeds that he used to just channel information to yeah. him because he was naturally inclined towards that sort of stuff and now he's gone on to a very successful career at the FT where he keeps telling us what we should and should be doing with our data journalism students <laughs> in, a, in a very robust fashion we've talked about it quite a lot yeah. <laughs> but, but we need that that sort of feedback from, from the industry because yeah, Martin and his team are pushing at the boundaries. Yeah, and yeah. One of the nice things is it, these are still small enough worlds that you know, journal that student journalists on these courses can go and actually talk to these Definitely. people, many of whom are just their predecessors. I mean, about half Martin's team is former yeah. graduates from this course. Yeah, it's 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 really encouraging being on this course, knowing how many how many the the, the circle of city alumni, how like how many connections and even if it's not direct connections it's yeah. connections through someone else it's a small world it's a I small mean, world data yeah. journalism is a small world there's yeah. only a handful of places to teach it. social as well social and audience engagement is a small world yeah they are growing but there aren't a lot of people in these roles and yeah, that may that will change over time mm. but right now you tend to know the practitioners and you tend to keep in touch with the practitioners i tend to keep in touch because it's how I keep up with what's going on in the world mm. and what's going on in my area of influence. But quite, quite brutally, a lot of people keep in touch with each other because they might be recruiting each other later down the road. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's simply just not a lot of people who are very skilled in these spaces out there. For sure. And honestly, I mean, even even on the course, like right now, you can sort of see those connections already start to form. I'm not saying that anyone is in it to make uh, for... for um, well, I mean, networking is a fundamental skill of journalism. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. You don't become a journalist unless you have an ability to form connections, make contacts, sure. and build that. It, it, it is how you get stories. What I mean by, like, I can see the budding of that network. I mean, the networking already happened because you have people like shooting job applications to each other yeah. and people saying stuff like, oh, I did uh, work experience at ITV. I can just shoot you the editor's email and stuff yes. like that, which is... I mean, journalism itself is not a vast world. Yeah. You, you start to get to know people and you know people people and yeah it, that's the way things move on yeah and people have this impression and maybe this is true more on the outside <laughs> the real world as it were people have this impression that journalism is like a really cutthroat sort of it is but it depends where you are right so if you are two political reporters on two major national newspapers yes it's pretty cutthroat right, right. you might know each other but you're ruthlessly competing for stories right however in these sort of more backroom jobs like the social media stuff of the engagement stuff you're often not in absolutely direct competition True. there's overlap with it and there is a value to both of you not maybe sharing the details or the analytics but sharing approaches and text strategies yeah now sometimes people will tell me about things and go but don't tell anybody else because we're making loads of money off the back of this and we don't want the secret to get out so actually weirdly a few years ago um there were in the consumer space there were some people i knew who were were doing great guns on Apple News when everyone else had dismissed it and they sort of told me on the quiet don't spread it too much and even now I'm being a little bit vague so as not to 
uh, the whole landscape of Papua New Guinea has changed since then, which is why I don't feel bad talking about it. Right. But there is still, in these emergent fields, there is still a lot of value in cooperation between practitioners across organisations. Yeah. Because it doesn't harm their organisation and allows everyone's skill sets to grow. Yeah. And I think that's actually a nice linking thread between the social and the data work, because with all the data work, we're doing pretty much everything on GitHub. Mm -hmm which is like this, if you don't know, is this um, open source platform for collaboration. And Absolutely. I think that's a connection between the two fields is that it does feel very, uh, to a certain extent, you, what you're saying about strategies, I think it's open in that sense. Yes. I think also, I mean, there is a strong connection between social and data anyway, in the sense that, first of all, the social can just be a data set you can analyze. Yeah, true. But also, if you're getting strategic about social, you need some of those data analysis skills to look at the analytics and draw out the really interesting information. True, yeah. And again, another consistent message, because I bias far towards the social side, one of the consistent messages I've heard from, from the students here who've gone into social is how useful the data thing has proved to be mm. later on, yeah. as they've suddenly looked at these you know, vast dumps of information from uh, Google Analytics or another, and it's back in gone. How do I extract meaningful information from this oh hang on a second i did a whole module on extracting yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. stories from data maybe i could use that and i think often it's it's often it's not always the coding stuff i find most useful it's often it's just data literacy and being yeah. able to look at a graph and understand what it is yes and you look at analysis and you understand how to yeah. use a pivot table to extract something exactly. interesting pivot tables are the most useful thing on excel uh, my wife would say that repeatedly she's a big <laughs> fan of pivot tables yeah i remember learning them and just being like they would just give you stories. You could put in any information and go cross-reference by this, and it would just be like, oh, well, there's a story. But um, anyway, uh, I think we have time. We have definitely <laughs> gone over, but that's fine. Um, I have time enough for one more question, and actually, since we were talking about open platforms, um, I know that you're not a huge fan of Spotify getting into the podcasting market. I am, I am nervous about it. Right. Just because... Podcasting has managed to stay an open platform. Mm. So email has managed to stay an open platform. Yeah, that's a good point. And Spotify are the first people who see that. There is a danger that if a, Apple have been very good custodians of the podcasting market, uh, unusually, <laughs> in the sense that they have never tried to lock it down, they've never tried to close it up. They added some extensions to RSS for podcasts, which some people work with and some people don't but they never try to make it an Apple thing. Yeah, true. They've made their podcast directory available via APIs. Other podcast apps can pull in into and out of it. I didn't know it was an Apple thing until two months ago. Yeah, and so they've, they've because they, they got into podcasting very early, partially because podcasting was named after one of their products, the iPod, <laughs> um, they have allowed it to thrive without getting too involved. But I think there's always been a nervousness among the podcasting community that somebody might come along and um, insert themselves as a gatekeeper in the way that mm. sort of Facebook took a lot of the best ideas of blogging and photo sharing and locked them down into a into a contained platform. True. And there have been a couple of venture capital backed efforts that have tried to do that, and none of which have really got traction yet. Spotify is a bit more nerve wracking, in the sense that they are very big out there anyway. Yeah. And if they have lots of financial incentives to get people to listen to podcasts rather than music because every music stream they play costs them money whereas potentially every podcast they play could make them money if there's advertising attached to it so they have reasons to move it there and if they become 
if too many podcasts disappear behind the Spotify paywall, if you like. Yeah. If they're actually no longer podcasts, they are internet audio, which are locked up within all, Spotify. Yeah, but true. If, I'm not less worried about in the UK because the BBC have done a really good job of educating the entire world about podcasting but even they're sort of pulling everyone to the BBC Sounds app I'd, I'd hate to see a world where you had to be on BBC Sounds or you had to be on Spotify yeah, to reach yeah. an audience because then we're back in that position where our relationship with an audience is mediated through, through a player and that's what the problem with Google is that's what the problem with Facebook yeah. is they mediate our relationships with our audience right now we publish an RSS feed of a podcast, anyone can subscribe to it in any app, that's a direct relationship. Yeah. As soon as we need Spotify's permission to reach our audience, we're in trouble. Well, I mean, I suppose the really depressing thing is that it is always going to be mediated, because, I mean, it's mediated by Apple, they just don't do much mediation. Yeah, they could have mediated, but they don't, and there's lots of other podcast apps yeah. which aren't mediated by Apple. For sure, definitely. So, I mean, I, d I don't use Apple Podcasts, I use an app called Overcast, which I, I happen to like on my, my phone. Um, and so, although podcast is pulling off Apple's podcast directory, it doesn't use anything else of Apple's infrastructure. Yeah. And if it built its own directory, it wouldn't have to talk to Apple at all. True. And so that's been the advantage of staying an open ecosystem. And I think this is one of the problems with journalists. There's a sort of perverse pride in some journalists in not understanding the tech. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be able to build the tech, you don't need to be able to play with the tech, but you need, at least need to understand. I mean, I've said in the past, I think it's. A plumber who would say, who came in and went, oh, I don't really know how, how a wrench works. You'd be like, okay. <laughs> Get out of my house. Leave my house. <laughs> but a journalist who takes pride in not knowing how the tools that they use to reach their audience Very work true. should be as worrying. Yeah, yeah. And I think at a business level, we, we, were, we were too ready to hand over too much of our business to Facebook. And we've been penalised for that. For and sure. I've seen people make similar mistakes with Google back in the day. We now need to be much more aware of people who might try and try to get it between us and our audience. Yeah. And this is the, the encouraging thing about the growth of audience engagement and audience growth as job descriptions, because it's the journalism world recommitting to a direct relationship, a trust relationship with their audience. And I think as, going back to the political landscape change we talked about earlier, as that gets more intense, because that's only going to get more intense, we need to find ways of engaging with our audience as directly as the politicians yeah, are. Yeah, sure. And so that's, I suspect, going to be a huge growth area for the whole of journalism over the next 10 years. Exciting. And maybe something for people, potentially listeners, to act on. In I, I think... I think at some level it's something every journalist is going to have to act on yeah true I think journalists are going to have to use the tools to become closer to their audience but maybe not necessarily in the very performative way they're doing it on Twitter now because <laughs> we can see some of the downsides of that in yeah. sort of the the tension the distraction the anger the abuse and the threats yeah because uh, again it's one of the things that's okay for a proportion of journalists who are wealthy and maybe white and maybe straight Whereas journalists who are from minorities or who are female will suffer abuse in a way that I, as a straight white guy, am never going to suffer. Same. <laughs> um, it, it, there's no interesting argument about whether the reasons platforms like Facebook and Twitter are so open to abuse is they were built by people from a, a, a very privileged background yeah uh, privilege feels like a very loaded word these days but right, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. but from a privileged background who never occurred to them that 
they might say that these tools might be used to abuse people and have been slow to adopt to the, the position where people are being given horrible and sometimes life-threatening or life-ending experiences via social yeah, media. True. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we need to rethink that and think more intelligently about how we engage with our readers and our sources via these tools. I mean, I have a little bit of a, an advantage, if you like, from coming from the world of business publishing, where, you know, in trades titles, the people you write for are the people you write about. There is no separation. True, yeah. And that actually forces you, generally, to walk a much tighter line down the middle about... If you go too easy on the industry, everybody knows. If you're too hard on the industry, everybody knows. Yeah. So it forces you to be very honest. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the big mainstream newspapers are very distant from their readers or have been traditionally. And finding ways of coming back to that is interesting. Mm. I, I think a lot of the local titles made a mistake by, you know, by sort of pulling away from towns and becoming regional hubs. And we're starting to see some very interesting... Uh, work where people are going back to the town level and trying to put journalists back in the towns. They don't have offices in the town, but they have a journalist living in the town. That's proper engagement. That's somebody who's physically there. In the community, literally yes. there, yeah, physically. I. It has been lovely having you on, Adam. Uh, it has been very, very lovely. It's. We've gone over by 20 minutes. <laughs> Oops, sorry. So, but that's, that's I'm going to end up on the digital cutting room floor. <laughs> well, I should, but I'll, I'll, see what, I'll see what happens. Um, and thank you again, Adam, very much for agreeing to appear on the show. My pleasure. It's my fourth podcast appearance, but one of the most fun. <laughs> thank you. Oh, cheers. I hope you guys enjoyed that extended episode with Adam. He's been on this worldwide web thing for quite a while, and so we're very lucky to talk with him. I won't keep you much longer, just a few more plugs. That article I was mentioning the other day about Dropout TV is up. Give that a look if online web culture is your thing. Have you ever wondered how freedom of information and Love Island are related? Well, Nimra has just the story for you on the website. James is at it again with a TikTok experiment into the algorithm there. He very much loves TikTok. And we have a date of his guide up from Francis and Looney for anyone looking to get into that. And that will about do it for the plugs. Remember to follow us on social media for more social media-based news and data news and things of that nature. Keep subscribed to the podcast feeds to make sure you're always getting our content. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope you hear from us soon. Bye.